you are now listening to Into the Macroverse, a comprehensive, all-in deep dive into the Stephen King cinematic universe. We are your hosts, Jacob Willett and Levi Hill, here to transport you to the multidimensional playground known as Stephen King's Macroverse. Please kick back, put on your favorite pair of noise-canceling headphones, and join us as we journey all right everybody welcome to into the macroverse a show where we go deep into the cinematic universe of stephen king and if you've been following along we've been doing the stan miniseries this is the 1994 one which you may or may not know existed yeah yeah it, it was it's happened before uh cbs and paramount plus did the new recent one that came out in 2020 with a lot of the uh, more recognizable actors from today. Yeah, they definitely kind of like revamped the whole thing. I don't really know what they add to it, but we are excited to go into that soon. The 2020 miniseries, with its such perfect timing, feels like one of the next ones we have to do. Oh, definitely, without a shadow of a doubt. And so, if uh, for those who have been following us, the macroverse in itself is the universe in which all of Stephen King's writings and works seem to exist and coexist in their own little parallel, uh, you know, parallel events. So, without further ado, let's get into episode two of in of uh, the Stand, nineteen ninety four. So, in the last episode, we left off with many of our characters realizing that they need to head to Nebraska to meet up with Mother Abigail. And so this film continues on that story with all of the names you know and a few new ones as well. Absolutely. And what I think was really cool about this episode is you get to see like this journey side of people and especially the characters and how like how they respond to pressure. Yes, because they're all kind of facing different pressures at the same time. We have Harold taking the pressure of being a decent human being and supporting Fran because he just does not care that her father died. I think it's kind of funny that we talk about Harold first because we're gonna we're gonna discuss. I think we should discuss each of the characters' journeys, uh, you know, as as themselves and where they went, rather than you know one big timeline like the show does. But I think it's kind of like you said, Harold is kind of a loser. He's totally a jerk in how he responds to Fran grieving. Yeah, and I mean, it's the first opening shot of this film, this episode specifically, is her suing him and like sewing him like a little cover so he doesn't get. Covered in maggots and rot and stuff. Yes, coffin, if you would. I guess it's a coffin, yeah. And, you know, while she's grieving, she buries him, and here comes her boy Harold at the rescue, ready to swoop her up and save the day being the big man that he's always dreamed of being. And he can barely even carry her father down the stairs. <laughs> but, but, you know, I guess he thought that, you know, if he helps bury her and bury her past along with it, maybe he'll have a chance. Yeah, he can cling on to that hope for as long as he wants, I guess. Now, we could say, honestly, the whole friend zone thing is kind of a new term, but I've never seen a character friend zone so hard, so explicitly, that when Franny goes, Harold, we'll always be friends. Oh, yeah, and that, see, that wasn't even a painful moment, because <laughs> the man deserves it. Like, he is not there for any sort of comfort for her after her father dies. He's just trying to take advantage of the apocalypse, basically. Oh, definitely. He's, I, you can definitely see that, you know, his whole arc so far from what we can tell as we go into the series is the fact that this guy just really wants to end up with Fran and he's willing to go to any lengths it seems to get there. 
And he even came up with that weird plan that they're going to go visit the uh, CDC site to figure out what happened and see if anybody's working on a cure, unbeknownst to him that Stu escaped from that. Yeah, he really he really tried to do his own research there. And then they had to give up, give up on that pretty quickly. Because why would you want to go all the way up to Vermont just to prove the same thing that everyone else already knows? Well, that's because he's from uh, Missouri and doesn't listen to people, you know? Yeah, he wants to go his own way, I guess. And it's so, really funny how much he clings on to that. And it's, I think it's even more interesting the fact that, you know, he seems like he's willing to do almost anything to just impress Frank. From learning to ride a motorcycle to completely altering his look. And by the way, as a fan of leather, that was one of the worst jackets I've ever seen. Oh, it is horrific. It doesn't even <laughs> age well for the film being nearly 30 years old now. I, okay, people even in the 90s didn't even dress like that. That was terrible. No, it was horrible. I Even for what it takes place, this show was supposed to take place in, I believe, the 70s, right? I believe so, yes. Even then, I was like, what is this man wearing? But we, uh, we see that he meets up with our good friend, Stu, who, in his long journey after leaving the Vermont site, meets up with Glenn Bateman, a guy who seems to have survived and is just living out his life as best he can. He's drawing out on the bridge, trying to just chill with his dog. He doesn't even seem to really care about the apocalypse. He's just trying to vibe. Just retiring. He's living that retirement life. Exactly. And he's having a pretty good time when Stu comes around. And even though he kind of scares him, he doesn't scare Glenn, which kind of scares me how this guy is just so unassuming and so unafraid of anyone. You you bring up a point, because Stu just literally walked up with an M16. Yeah, and the guy was like, oh, hello there. A fancy gun. Hope you're not going to use it on me. (laughs) But ultimately, I think that does play into the fact that maybe Stu knows more than what we would imagine that he does. I mean, yeah, he does kind of have that higher burst of knowledge compared to the other characters. Because he was at least inside of that lab. He's probably seen more of what this sickness can do. But he almost feels immortal. Yeah, I think he does have that sense of... um, confidence with him yeah because he's just like not scared of anything or anyone yeah once we see that you know Stu and glenn meet they kind of you know form this like uh brotherly bond if you would yeah definitely just trying to make the most of what they got and then that's when a pivotal piece of information comes when we find out that not just Stu, not just our friend larry not just uh Harold and not the main characters we've already introduced to, but Glenn himself also says that he's been noticing these dreams. Yes. Basically, every character we come across in this episode is united by the same dream, this vision. The only characters I can see who aren't getting them, because from what we see, we have Harold getting them, we have Fran getting a glimpse of them, we have Stu getting them, Glenn getting them. But then we're introduced to Nadine, who Larry, while uh, you know waltzing around abandoned New York or the remnants of New York, meets Nadine, this girl, and she instead is dreaming of flag. Yes, and some very choice dreams that she's having, and it kind of pins her as like this object of desire within the macroverse. Which is a key pivotal moment because I think that a lot of the times within the macroverse of what we've 
scene in the cinematic universe, there seems to be always some sort of element of desire. Yes. And you Especially look at, for antagonists. Yeah. I mean, when you look at the 1990 It miniseries, the object of desire is souls. Same with Dreamcatcher. Um, possession. Yeah, absolutely. And, and here we see it's Nadine. And Flag wants her to just only listen to him. Yes. And to an extent, she does. Oh, yeah. Me. It takes a little bit of convincing, but I would be convinced of somebody who comes to me in these visions as a weird snake face looking guy who looks like he came out of the Lost Boys. Exactly. But speaking of visions, here's where we see something else that's really interesting. And that's that while everybody dreams of going to Nebraska to get to um, uh, that lady's house. Mother Abigail. <laughs> that's right. To get to Mother Abigail's house. We see that she dreams as well. Only it's not of any salvation. It's a flag himself. Who yes. stands behind the corner. Yes, he stays behind the rose. But even that far away from Mother Abigail, he still has some serious power. She's begging to her god to keep him up, to keep her alive, to keep Randall Flagg away. But Randall Flagg is able to make her bleed out of her hands. And this is an act that, you know, I think really pertains greatly to the macroverse because here we see that there's blood and corn and rats. Very similar to a lot of the elements that were in Children of the Corn. All of the elements, really. We got that possession. Absolutely. And on top of that, it's the fact that he's able to do this from afar as well. Yeah, he doesn't even because have to it, get that close. Because it does seem like her house did have some type of protection around it. But not only that, Randall was not able to come past the corn, and neither is most of the characters either. Stu is stuck in the corn. Larry is stuck in the corn whenever they have visions. Everybody seems to be right there and can't enter Abigail's little circle. Correct. So we see the rise of Randall flag in this episode, which is also very pivotal because we see his amount of power he has an influence over others. And we see this when he visits Trash Man, when he visits the Rat Man. Is that what he's called? The Rat Man? Yeah, the Rat Man. Oh, that's so rude, just because he had to eat a rat. I'm, very, I'm pretty sure he's called the Rat Man. Is that his, is the character's name? Uh, no, he had some prisoner name. But we're going with the Ratman. But 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 generally he is known as the uh, Ratman. His name is Irwin's, but a lot of people call him the Ratman, including Flag. Okay. Yeah, and then Flag is very effortlessly able to kind of get the Ratman on his side just by freeing him of the prison. Oh, of course. You offered a bit of freedom, a little bit of you know how might you say confidence. But above all else, I think what he did was how he just played mind games with him. Yes. And I also think he kind of fed into his desire for power. Because he said, and I quote, I choose you. I chose you. Even above Trashman. And now we see in this episode that Trashman is being sent to blow up reserves. Yes, all over the place. He's just kind of being told to bring your dynamite sticks and just destroy everything. But I think all it's kind of pivotal that he's uh, blowing up fuel reserves. Yeah, it's almost like he's kind of trying to stop everyone else from making it to Nebraska and reuniting. Exactly. So here we see Randall Flagg's influence over Nadine, who he says is a chosen one, is the chosen one. He has chosen the Ratman 
and is leading the trash man, and also has Mother Abigail terrified of him. Oh yeah, she completely, totally fears him. And it's funny because in the last episode, it almost feels like Mother Abigail is very, very powerful. Too strong almost. Only to be knocked down this far. Yeah. And it's almost kind of like he humbles her in a way because it almost seemed like she was certain she could keep him back and restrain him. But Randall Flagg's just too powerful of a force. Absolutely. And you bring up that point, which I really enjoy because it seems as though his powers have only doubled since the events of Children of the Corn. Yes. And that's crazy considering he was already able to possess an entire village of children, basically. And we could see that within the macroverse, a person of this much influence definitely does play a part in a lot of people's lives. And when looking back as a whole, we do see that crow everywhere, which I think is another pivotal point within the macroverse is that this Randall Flagg character is everywhere. But we're going to get into that a little bit later when we talk about how everything in this episode we think may affect uh, the macroverse. But first, I want to talk a little bit about Larry. Larry meets Nadine and is almost instantly, how could you say, infatuated by her? Yes. Enamored, I guess, even. <clears throat> he, he's definitely drawn to her, finds her um, attractive emotionally, physically, and ultimately it seems as though we see a change in his character from being, you know, this strong-willed guy to, I guess you could say in a way, simpy. Yes, you could say that. He's very how could you say, driven by his desire to help her and ultimately be with her. Yes, and thankfully not in the same way as Harold, but still a little bit lusty, I would say. They both are. And what I think is interesting between Harold and uh, Franz, compared to that of Larry and Nadine, is that Larry does know when to draw the line. Yes, very clearly. He even is capable of recognizing some of his wrongs. Which which we see in Larry, he doesn't, and always tries to one-up everybody, which I think is a recipe for disaster in the next coming episode. Yes, definitely. But speaking of Her- of uh, Harold's, you know, rising ego, what'd you think about uh, Fran and Stu? Fran and Stu were interesting, but it was more to me just really funny seeing how defensive Harold got, and then Stu had mm-hmm. to be like, it's okay, I'm not going for her. <laughs> well, Kinda it seems to... like Fran really did have her eye on her. I would say so, yeah. But I mean, why not? Especially when you've been looking at Harold for the past two weeks. Anybody but Harold. Anybody but Harold, we've decided here. And it's not even the fact that, you know, it's not just because he's ugly. It's just his personality as a whole. Yeah, exactly. Like, I I could have watched this movie blind and still been annoyed by Harold. (laughs) But then we see that um, we have our other good friends, played by Rob Lowe. We see that uh, our good friend, uh, uh, pardon me there, Nick. Nick Andrews. Makes a return. Nick, the deaf mute, makes a return, and he meets a a special needs man named Tom. Tom Cullen, M-O-O-N, that spells Tom Cullen. (laughs) But I I think it's kind of interesting that Tom made up his own society of people. It was interesting. It was like he got lonely, but it wasn't like creepy. It was more like wholesome that he had his own little community of mannequins keeping him company it was and it it was it was very irobot i'm sorry not irobot uh i am legend vibes to it that's kind of what i was thinking i wonder if i am legend took any of that from this it's a pretty influential series but then we see that they go and travel a bit 
that they that Nick and Tom kind of have this understanding of each other. Like they can, you know, they don't really need to speak or anything like that to know what what each other's going. Yeah, they're both very drawn to each other, and I think honestly, Tom and um, shoot, Tom and Nick are kind of like a, one of the strongest duos in the series. Oh yeah, like, I mean Tom, Tom and Nick, like you know. Even though they have those uh, limitations put on them, they seem to be overcoming a lot more than the rest of the characters do. Definitely. There's no really any fighting. Tom is pretty assuming and understanding that Nick is not there to hurt him. And we see that Nick cares because he's willing to go out and find medicine for Tom when he has a stomachache. Yes, and when he goes out for that medicine, he finds probably the worst character in this series so far, Julie. Julie. Yes. (laughs) Now, she's kind of just camping out in this little store. I don't know what she's doing. Probably just eating cheese, n- cheese nubs or something. I don't know. Just hiding She out. was in a convenience store, it looked like. Almost like a backcountry general store. A mom-and-pop store. Yeah, definitely mom-and-pop store vibes. You know, in the middle of nowhere. And she meets Nick and is like, Oh, I've been so lonely. And tries to get rather, how could you say, risque with him. A little close, yeah. To the and point where she's telling him to ignore his friend. Yeah, no, he's, like, mad about... And she's, like, mad at the fact that he's trying to get out there and go give his sick friends a medicine. Like, already when jealous. All, when all she wants to do is yeah, give him bad medicine. But anyway. Yeah, but anyway. Uh, we she see that she becomes a massive threat because she instantly turns to violence when she doesn't get what she wants. Oh, yeah, immediately she runs away after being hit by Nick... Goes into her little bunker and starts shooting. And if it wasn't for Tom Colin, Nick would have had absolutely no idea he was being shot at. Oh, yeah. Which I think that was another great example of their unspoken communication. Yeah, just kind of by looking at Tom Colin, Nick can kind of tell something's wrong. And then is pointed it back behind him and realizes he's being shot at. And they ride away into the sunset. And Julie was one of the worst shots I've ever seen. Yeah, I don't know if she was trying to miss her or what. But then we see that Tom and Nick make it to Mother Abigail. They They're do. They're the first survivors that we uh, see who actually make it to Mother Abigail. Yeah, but they wouldn't have made it to Mother Abigail if it wasn't for the help of Ralph, who drives a very old, beat-up truck. I believe it was like an old Ford truck. They probably it was. Like... And, and yeah, like I said, they got a ride and made it to Mother Abigail all the way. Yeah, and they would have only gotten a few miles in. On their bike ride before they probably passed out from exhaustion. And if it wasn't for Ralph, who knows how long it would have taken them to get there. And so Ralph's involvement, and he's this nice old man, also pretty unassuming as a character. He's kind of a well-rounded man that just happened to survive. Yeah, I think he's just, you know, generally a good, a good light in, you know, in their perpetual tunnel that they're stuck in. Yeah. And see, I kind of like that dynamic within the show that a lot of the characters that are still alive aren't always bad. Like, you see in apocalyptic shows like The Walking Dead, people just don't trust anyone they come across whatsoever, and for good reason. But then you look at this at this show, at The Stand, and everyone kind of just trusts each other. Except for Harold. Harold doesn't trust anyone. Exactly. Now, here in this part, we see that a lot of other survivors have also made their way to Mother Abigail, thus implying that everybody had the same dream. And we have this kind of feast and camaraderie, uh, you know, camaraderie celebration that everybody's here. Yeah. But then we quickly learn that it's time they can't stay there for 
I forget what the reason was. Do you know why they couldn't stay there? I believe Mother Abigail knew that once they got to Nebraska, they needed to make their way to Colorado. What I think was kind of interesting about it was watching that scene, it seemed like the tone instantly got darker atmospheric-wise, almost as if Randall was there himself. Yes, there was kind of this feeling of unease towards the end, when you would think that it was pretty wholesome, because up to this point, even despite all the stuff going on in the background, the character dynamics are pretty wholesome. They're all pretty happy together, but there's still like this looming sense of dread once they all get reunited. Because I say reunited because they've all been together in the dreams. Yeah. And then we see that they're going on to Colorado. So yes. they all pack their bags and travel out. And this is where the um, episode starts to end and where we see that Nick and, and company with Mother Abigail, they see a giant group of bikers starting to drive up and it wasn't just bikers i believe there were also a couple of trucks driving in the background yeah. a, so good, we, a good amount of like i would say a, a community yeah definitely it was about at least 20 something people and i think that the other important aspect is the fact that after we see this everybody seems to be a little bit happy but then we go back to the trash man who's been blowing things up randomly at the beckoning of Randall's flag. Stumbles into a casino where a couple of hot shots are sitting there gambling, falls down, and they're just like, oh, well, uh, it looks useful. Yeah. It's interesting because this character is just so insanely deranged. And it's just like, no one wants to mess with him. But they're all kind of enamored. So nonchalant. Yes. They're just like, oh, he's taking a nap over there. Looks like he So now that, we've, now that we've discussed this episode, let's get into how, what this means to the macroverse. Okay, yeah. We've talked plot, we've discussed the characters, and by this point, you know how we feel about the Stephen King adaptation. Now, it's time for our favorite part of the Into the Macroverse episode, where we bring up our theories and beliefs about how everything happening within this universe is a part of something bigger. That is right, folks. It's Macroverse Theory Time. Welcome back, guys. If you're just tuning in, we're talking about the Stan episode two. Um, where this is Into the Macroverse, talking about all of Stephen King's cinematic universe. And right now we're going to get into how we think that this episode really played into the macroverse as a whole. And for those who are just joining us, the macroverse, like we said, is the entire works of Stephen King and the universe that they live in and how they affect one another. So, so what do you think about this episode, Jacob? Like, What do you think it means for everything? Well, for one, I think it's one of the biggest key indicators of the fact that Randall Flagg is just kind of everywhere. At every moment, he's just hiding in the background. And now you have to go back and kind of think, how many crows have you seen throughout the Stephen King shows and movies? What I think is really interesting as well is that Randall Flagg seems to be a being of immense power. I would say even more so than 
Pennywise are on the same level. And I think it's kind of interesting that he chose blood, much like Pennywise chose blood, to scare uh, his their victims. Yes, because especially with Mother Abigail, she seems so powerful and like like such a prominent protagonist that you don't think she can really get hurt, and then it very quickly flips on his head. Exactly. He turns everything around. Much like we see Pennywise doing to the Losers Club, who think that they can handle this, think they all got together only to have their entire world shattered in an instant. Yes, because before that, the dreams that Mother Abigail was putting on these people uplifted all of them and made them feel like they could actually fight this force. But then right after that, they all kind of start to lose their hope, and you can kind of see that they're more on edge. And I think what this means for the macroverse, being that you think that everybody is on edge, is the fact that when things are going to go south within all the macroverse, we notice the weather change to a darker, looming, more gray atmosphere. And I think that perhaps it isn't a coincidence, and it is Randall himself watching. I agree. I also think another thing that kind of ties into the macroverse is just the vulnerability of the, of the victims, of these characters. It's almost as if Flag is preying on vulnerability. We have old people, prisoners, addicts like Nadine, and then mentally disabled like Tom Colin. It's almost very intentional that Randall Flag is going after a certain subset of people. I guess you would kind of say those that are most marginalized. And that's common throughout the macroverse in general. It's always the ones that were... Like, it's always the small fish being beaten down. Exactly. And we could see uh, a really big problem in Key would be Carrie when we went over that movie. Because she herself was picked on. But the only difference we can see there is that she was perhaps, you know, instead of being the victim... Well, she was a victim, but more she turned into the antagonist herself. Yes, she did turn into the antagonist. And it makes me wonder, what if, what if Flag, being the how normal he looks, did sleep with Carrie's mom, or was a gray in his own right, or a different hey, look version? At, look at him. I wouldn't be too surprised. He can get who he wants. And it's with influence as well. Mm-hmm. And with the appearance of his face when he transforms to show that other side, much like how we see the Greys transform to do their other side, much how we see Pennywise transform, he has his own transformation as well, which is terrifying. And if looked at by someone who is religious, one can easily make that assumption that it is the devil. Yes. And that's what's so interesting as well, because you were talking about Carrie. And throughout Carrie, telepathy is actually one of the more prominent powers that we see Harry has. And considering how much Mrs. White plays into this idea that she is the devil, it would make sense that telepathy is a power that Randall Flagg, who we see as the devil, has. And he did show that off when he moved the mattress on his own. Exactly. But as well as that, just being able to talk to these characters through dreams, that itself is a form of telepathy. And I think this episode really plays in the fact that maybe Randall was everywhere. Yes. You can really look back and kind of imagine him in any scenario, any Stephen King adaptation, just anywhere in the macroverse, wherever he wants to be, he can be there. And I think another key factor is the blood in itself. We see a lot of these antagonists are obsessed with blood. And when we look at Carrie, that we were talking about in relevance to Randall Flagg from The Stand, 
she was covered in pigs. Yes. We look at Pennywise and it, and there was blood that trauma uh, traumatized the Losers Club. You know, oh. balloons filled with blood. There was bathrooms filled with blood. Uh, Stink, things yeah. of that nature. And then we can even look at The Shining, elevators of blood. A whole pool of it, yeah. You know, these different elements of everything that we've already gone over. Even Firestarter. Whenever um, they would use their powers, blood would come from them. Yeah, nosebleeds as well. So I think a big prominent factor in knowing if something's going to be good or not is the blood and if Randall is really there. Interesting thought. But on that... uh, Yeah, go ahead. The one thing I do wonder when we're looking at Mother Abigail is that even though we don't see her called the Chosen One, she comes off as the only one who can really stop Randall Flagg. He does, almost like this beacon of good. Yes. But you have to wonder why does every other survivor automatically know who she is? And to me, I think that maybe she's giving out her information, who she is, you know, key information about her, because maybe she might be wanting to pass on that. Maybe she wants to bring all these people together to pass on what she has to someone to stop Flag, much like we've seen Duddits do in Dreamcatcher. True. But you also mentioned the fact that you can associate blood with the antagonists. Mm -hmm. And Mother Abigail herself was bleeding. That's right. But I think that we can say that she's more of a protagonist because it was used against her. Yes, but then you also have to question the fact that she's 106 years old and seemingly still in good health. It almost makes me start to wonder if maybe she herself is one of those supernatural beings, just a good one. You bring up a good point. I didn't even remember her age, you're right. Yeah, and you, you, you don't know anyone that's 106 years old and still alive, not to mention still walking and struggling to stay alive and fighting. But like, even then, a, a sound mind a very sound mind. And if she has this power to kind of interrupt their dreams, just like Randall Flagg, who's to say that she's not one of those powers, one of those forces in the macroverse? And I think it's also interesting that one of Randall Flagg's bigger calling cards as well, aside from the Raven, is the rats. Yes. And how many episodes have we, how many uh, films have we seen where rats are also involved? There are a lot of them, now that I think about it. Um, did you ever watch 1922? I did, and that did include the rats, which we'll probably have to get into that in another future episode as well. We will, 100%. But for now, and what we've learned from The Stand Episode 2, is that Randall Flagg seemingly has more control over everybody, and is everywhere at once, and knows what these characters are already doing, almost before they do. Yes, he kind of has this sense of, like endless foresight just he's just always able to know what's going to happen he can almost predict their every moves he comes in what that means for the macroverse is that maybe he influences people as well not just within the stand and that's what makes me wonder that if we know that mother abigail has that power of telepathy what if randall flag is the one kind of giving her this idea to unite all of his targets at once. Never even thought of it. Maybe she's been manipulated and doesn't even know it. Exactly. I mean, she is 106, and she's in too too good of health for me to think that she's not powerful in one way or another. 
And Randall Flagg seems to have a reason for keeping people alive. He does, and he always he only seems to keep those that he knows he can control or manipulate. And that's what I mean by the vulnerable. We have the special needs. We have Julie, who is just psychotic. We have Harold, who's just kind of a nerd and a creep. We have Tom Cullen, who's special needs. We have Nick Andros, who's deaf and mute. It's almost it really people. gives me... Um... Well, it gives me vibes like the main antagonist in um, Christine. Yeah. A lot of similarities within those characters. For that episode, be sure to look back at uh, some of our previous episodes a little bit back. We did, we covered Christine as well. We did. But seeing, but seeing the correlation between those two, maybe Flag had a part to play in that as well. Exactly, because every Stephen King film we've seen thus far... It's always kind of like the smaller voices, like I said, the smaller fish that are being targeted. And Cujo is just a, a mom and her kid. Two a very... cheating mom and her kid. What's that? A cheating mom and her kid. Cheating mom, yeah. But still, like, small fish people that aren't that strong. We got the, pr- the guy in prison, Prison Lloyd, who's clearly ill and struggling. It's almost as if he's only targeting certain people throughout the entirety of the macroverse. A lot of our questions are going to be answered in the next upcoming episode. Yes, they should be, and I really hope so, because I think you're a little bit more ahead of me. I think you're on the fourth episode now, right? I'm halfway through the third. Okay, well, thank you for withholding the information so far, because I am actually really enjoying this series. Absolutely. I think it's one of the the best ones we've covered so far. We have, and even though it's been lacking a little bit of the acting department, it's honestly, it feels really optimistic for such a not happy show. Because there's a road trip vibe to it, I guess you would say. Where it's like all these characters, all these like kind of social outcasts all being reunited. And I can't wait to see what, what they're going to do once they do all come together now. Exactly. But for those answers, you're going to have to tune in to the next episode of Into the Macroverse. But before that, I have one thing left here to put it into the mind of our audience and a question to leave you with. Hit us. This Macroverse that we see, we're so convinced that it takes place in the same universe but this is the only apocalypse that we know of throughout the Stephen King universe. And even though we don't know how this ends, it makes me wonder, is this really the same universe that all these things are happening in? Or is it multiple universes all happening at the same time? Because I've been wondering, and I've been seeing, there are very few of these films that are referenced in other Stephen King works. Which makes you wonder, why do some of these events not hit the news, not make it to the media, and some do? Even with government cover-up. So I leave you with this. Is the Macroverse really all one universe? Or is it all a whole bunch of similar universes all happening at the same time? So that thought comes also the thought of Randall himself. Being that we see that we've seen before and have seen in many of Stephen King's writings and other cinema um, interpretations that he has been confirmed to have been in many places. Yes. Can he travel dimensions? Is he a multidimensional being? A multidimensional threat? Personally? Because we've, we've seen that Pennywise is. Mm-hmm, exactly. So and there's not much to say that Randall couldn't be as well. 
especially considering Randall comes off as a lot stronger than Robert Gray. And with those two thoughts, I think it's a good place to end it and join us next time when we take a trip into the Macroverse. You've been listening to Levi Hill and Jacob Willett, and this has been a speculative dive into yet another one of Stephen King's twisted tales. So don't trust that sound you hear. Always keep a watchful eye, and don't look under the bed, because you never know what you may stumble upon when you wander your way into the macroverse.